Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Confession, I have been eagerly anticipating today's passage for a while. Um, passage, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, is traditionally associated with this particular Sunday in the season of Lent. And um, I've been really excited to share this scripture with you. But what does it look like to love Jesus? Like that can be kind of hard to pin down sometimes in our lives. What does it look like to love Jesus? If you were to kind of pause and evaluate how your lived life has loved Jesus, what would your conclusion be? Like looking at myself, asking that of myself, what is my lived life, how I've lived my life up to this point, how does that look in loving Jesus? Does it, does, would people look at me and say, Matt loves Jesus? Um, I, th I think that's actually, for some reason, it doesn't seem like it should be, but for some reason, that's a hard question because like, there's all of these degrees of, well, how much do I love Jesus? What do I love in competition to Jesus? Or, or, or all of these things that kind of come in. <clears throat> and, and this question is, is the question that I think I have been exiting out of the disruption of the last few years in my life which is how has my lived life loved Jesus? See, my struggle has been, I've realized that I have had some blind spots and I don't even know that I know all of the blind spots that I've had. But I've had a number of blind spots that God has, has opened my eyes to. And one of them is I'm far more generous practically with myself and my desires that don't exactly line up to what is really clear in scripture that Jesus wants. I also found that I'm less generous practically with other people. <laughs> and, and, and so, it's, so it's been this kind of process and, and it's not a shame thing. And I think that's really important for us to understand and recognize. It's not a shame thing or it's not, be stuck in this is feeling of guilt because I think it's more of a crossroads or an opportunity to say, how does Jesus want me to recalibrate my life in living it forward? Um, anytime that we are confronted, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, anytime our lives are confronted with something that is not in tune with God or his desires, then then. God's desire is not shame. It is a mercy and a grace so that we can be aware and move in a better direction. So this morning, Paul shares with Timothy this very thing, how his life has loved Jesus. And it ends with, what we would call the Maranatha cry. 
And, and Maranatha literally is just come Lord Jesus. It's, it's the phrase that, that, that believers have used from really, really way back to anticipate and look toward the, the return of Jesus. So it's this Maranatha cry. And the Maranatha cry is, is actually what it is. It's, it's us keeping our minds and hearts on Jesus and only on Jesus. It's preparing for his coming, for his return. It's proclaiming the word of the Lord, having a fiery obsession with this man from Galilee. When we say Maranatha, we are testifying to our love and devotion for King Jesus. That's what Maranatha is. And I think that that really, in a really great way, encapsulates these few verses that Paul summarizes his life up with the statement Maranatha. So if you have your Bibles, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm just going to read through a couple verses here. Starting verse 6, just a little bit of background. So Paul has just told Timothy that it's going to be hard for him to stay true to the gospel. It's going to be hard for him to not be polluted by the culture around him and, and begin to preach a gospel that is culturally influenced and tainted. And he's warned him that, that there will be people who don't want to hear that, but he needs to stay strong to that. And so then Paul summarizes his life and what I would say is kind of a Maranatha cry. He says in verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says, for I have already been poured out as a drink offering. You know, in, in Paul's summary of his life, I think he summarizes himself in the context of worship and desire. And I think worship and desire are kind of the, the, the flip side of the same coin. Because what you deeply desire, you will to some degree worship that, right? Like when we really desire something, we find ourselves being being occupied by that thing. And we find ourselves, probably the best way to describe it is like almost worshiping that thing we desire. And, and so, so I think what, what, what Paul is here explaining is that how he has loved Jesus, how he has worshiped, how his desire has, has turned into action. And that action is an action of worshiping King Jesus throughout his life. And so it begins with this thing of he has worshiped, he's loved Jesus in submission to God's sovereignty. And, and I think what we see there first right out of the gate is he says, um, he says it really specifically. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. There's this, there's this Old Testament sacrificial picture that's being painted here of an altar and how in Numbers 28, you would, you would have a, an animal and you'd put that animal on the altar. But also what you could do in, in addition, you could have a drink that you would pour out. It would be a drink offering, which would be an additional offering of thanksgiving, not just repentance. 
And, and so he says, I, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Here's what's interesting about the way, the way Paul states that. It's not that he says, I am pouring myself out. So Paul's not pouring himself out. The Roman Empire isn't pouring Paul out as this offering. But what he's doing is, he's, again, he's surrendering to the sovereignty of God, basically saying, however God sees fit to pour me out, then that's what I want. And, and the poured out drink offering is an offering of thanksgiving. So he's not only saying, I'm, my life is on the altar given to Jesus Christ, but also I'm being poured out and, and my response to what God is doing with me on the altar is thanksgiving and gratitude. I am thankful that God has chosen to pour me out in this way. He says, the time of my departure has come. And, and, and literally that, that word departure is to, to loose something an example of what, how that was used was when an army was breaking camp, it was they loosed the tent straps or strings or lines in preparation to break camp and go. And so basically what Paul's saying here is, is he's hauling up anchor to break camp to go home where he belongs. So the time of my departure has come. He's pretty specific. He's saying, look, I'm going to where I have always had my life made whole. And, and, and so he says that, and, and, and it's this, just this submission to God's sovereignty, and that's part of how he loves Jesus. That's how loving Jesus has been expressed in his life. The second thing in, in verse seven, he is worshiping and loving Jesus in faithful perseverance. There's something that we need, I just want to throw out. It's a much bigger conversation, but this. The mark of a person who follows and obeys Jesus is perseverance. And that is true from cover to cover in scripture. The problem with that is that perseverance is hard and we tend to live our lives in preservation rather than perseverance. Biblically, God's role in the life of God's people is preservation. It is God's role to preserve his people, and he does. Never in scripture does it say that we are to preserve ourselves. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about like preserve yourself from like sexual immorality or something like that, but I'm talking about self-preservation. God preserves. And every time in scripture that God's people have gone to preservation, they've always messed things up radically. We're called to persevere. Now, now I may not be preserved the way God, I want to be preserved. I would rather be preserved with God shutting the mouths of the lions versus be preserved by while being stoned, seeing the face of Jesus and giving me a peace as I die, like Stephen. I mean, if I'm gonna go preference, I want the lion's den with the nice kitties. <laughs> but God will preserve me in the manner with which he will receive the most glory. 
My role, your role is perseverance. Don't give up. And so Paul, in loving Jesus, worshiped in faithful perseverance. Notice what he says in verse seven, and this isn't boastful. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's not a boastful thing. It is a testimony toward perseverance, not triumph. Because, because even, even thinking about what he says, he says, I fought versus, the, versus I've had victory. That fought is a term of, of, of perseverance versus somehow I've conquered. He uses, he uses the term finished versus I've beaten others in the race. He says, I finished the race. And so part of what we see this perseverance in, in Paul's life in loving Jesus is, is, that, is that we see this perseverance recognized in this faithful struggle that he has. He says, I fought the good fight. And he's not saying in an armed conflict. It is in the, in the context of effort or struggle or contention. I fought the good fight. Because you see, he's, he's not actually fighting or struggling against an opponent or people. He's actually fighting to hang on to and, and, and be true and complete the ministry that has been given to him. Now, I don't know about you, but it is way harder for me to stick with ministry than it is to deal with somebody opposing me. It is way harder to hold on to the ministry that God's called me to and be faithful to that than any other conflict in my life. And Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have, and, and he's talking about that in the context of he's been faithful in ministry and he has not stopped. He's persevered. He's endured. He's overcome. And so he's persevered in ministry. Therefore, he says to Timothy, you need to as well. And to us, you persevere also. Don't just shrink back and try to preserve what you have and protect your stuff. Persevere, keep going. And then not, not only in that way that he had this faithful struggle, he also had this faithful pace. He says, I finished the race. Here's what's interesting about <clears throat> today, what's going on outside. Bunch of people running a marathon. Do you know what the, the, the last person to finish the marathon has in common with the, the first person to finish the marathon? They both finished. They both can equally and truly say, I finished the race. Isn't that interesting? Because they persevered. Now, what doesn't work is if you stop and you walk off of the race course. You can't say you finished the race. And see, Paul says, I finished the race. He, he's not talking about who he beat or who he won or what place he came in. He's just saying, I went all the way to the end. I persevered, I finished, I hung with it, I didn't stop. It's interesting, it, it is um, a similar context to in John, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Paul uses the same terms 
And there's a very similar context and force of those words put together where Jesus says, it is finished. And when Jesus said, is it finished? He said, salvation is now available to anyone who would come to me in faith. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, forgiveness of sins is possible and available to you. It's that same definitive usage that Paul says, I have finished the race. I've completed the ministry and the mission that God has called me to. And then we see in this his faithful purpose. He says, I've kept the faith. Paul's been faithful to the gospel of Jesus, not a culturalized gospel that he preached. And, and here's, here's the thing that we need to understand. And, and I, don't know if, I don't know if you've thought this way before, but we think a lot about the, the purity of the gospel and we think about, about people and, and like people who maybe don't quite understand the gospel we do and they're kind of off in different things. Here's the thing. I don't know that it matters who you are. Culture in the world seeps into the gospel that we believe and we live. And we have to be careful. And we, we need humility to recognize it because we're not always gonna see it, but when we are made aware of it, we need to recognize it. Because we're, we're not better than the early believers in the church in Galatia or Philippi or Ephesus. Do you realize that every letter that Paul wrote to the churches in the New Testament was basically calling out how culture had seeped into their gospel? Every single letter has a point that Paul is going at because these early believers who were minutes after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and they had the 12 original apostles to help them, those churches and those believers were falling in to gospels that were mostly right, but also culture had seeped in. And it was not what Jesus taught. Paul writes a letter to the, to the believers in Galatia. And his point is that the gospel is a gospel of grace alone through faith rather than a gospel of works, which was the cultural seepage in Galatia. He writes, he writes a letter to the church, to the Colossians in the church at Colossae. And he was writing to tell them, again, this is a gospel of Christ alone rather than a gospel reducing Jesus' person and work because that's what was happening there. That was the cultural seepage that was happening in Colossae. He writes 1 Timothy to Timothy and, and reminds Timothy because Timothy was facing in, in Ephesus a situation where the gospel, to remind him the gospel, this is a gospel according to scripture rather than a false gospel according to human wisdom. If the believers in Ephesus, Colossae, and Galatia had trouble keeping the gospel central and focused on Jesus, do you think that we won't have trouble with that from our culture? I mean, and they didn't even have social media to take their minds away. <laughs> so like, we have to recognize that there are going to be moments where, where we need revelation to see that we're not maybe loving or following Jesus the way Jesus has called us to follow and love him. But Paul says that he's been faithful. He's kept the faith. 
So it's possible. It's not impossible. And then finally, in verse eight, probably one of my growing favorite and most meaningful verses in the New Testament. Paul says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So there's a question. So there's this crown of righteousness that Paul is going to be awarded. I want us to recognize that this is not a crown that designates ruling. It is not a ruler's crown. It is not a reigning crown. It is a finisher's crown. It is a crown for those who finish. But there's, 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 there's a qualification on it. Do you know what the qualification is? He says, he says, for me, there is waiting a crown of righteousness that is also waiting for all those who what? Who love his appearing. Which means it is possible to have salvation from Jesus and not love his appearing because not everyone gets this crown. So, so what does it look like then? What, you know, what, is, what is Paul saying here about this idea and how we love Jesus? He says, the crown of righteousness is waiting for me and everyone who loves his appearing. In fact, he gives a contrast here. Because verse eight, he says, not only to me, but also to all who've loved his appearing. In verse 10, he talks about a fellow coworker, someone who's been in ministry with him. And he says in verse 10, right after that, he says, henceforth, or he says, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So right after he says, those who love his appearing, he then talks about a guy named Demas, who was his friend and ministry partner, who loved the things of this world and left and went to Thessalonica. I think that is a warning. I don't know what Demas's faith was. We, we're, scripture doesn't tell us. What we do know is that his love for the world was stronger than his love for Jesus appearing. Because you see, Jesus' second coming brings to an end the very things that Demas loves most. And so he can't love Jesus appearing because he loves the things in this world, this present world. And the things in this world that we love will be transformed into things that actually matter. And the things that do matter in this world, will God will work through. But, 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 but we live in part of our cultural seepage into our gospel is that I can have Jesus and I can have pretty much everything else that I've wanted. And that's basically becoming a hybrid of Paul and Demas. Demas over here saying, I love, I, me saying, I love, I love all this stuff. I also love Jesus, but, 
but I probably get almost more upset when these things are threatened than when I realize I need to live differently for Jesus. And, and, and so he, he gives this warning. You see, loving his appearing, it does mean that we can enjoy this present age, but, but, but we absolutely must have our hearts and our desires gripped by the new age that Jesus brings in with his appearing. We have, that's, that's kind of where it comes down to. And so, and so it's, here, here's the thing, the, the test of our love for the Jesus who has appeared is our love and obedience for the Jesus who will appear. Test of our love for the Jesus who has already come is our love and our obedience to the Jesus who says he will return. So how do we love and obey the Jesus who's returning? What did the Jesus who has come tell us to do before he comes back? See, that's how we know or don't know that we love his appearing. How are we preparing for his appearing? Because you see, I was trying to think of how to like make sense of this. And I was thinking, okay, so if I go back in time and um, I'm going to propose to Sherry and I go up to her and I say, okay, here's the deal. I'm tired of the dating game. I've had a lot of frustrating relationships. I mean, I want to get married. And so let's just get this over with because it's just, I'm get, it's gonna be better that we finally get married and just live together. And that way I'm done with all of the garbage that I've had to put up with before. So what do you say? So how well does that go? Not super great. Do I really love her in that? Or am I just trying to get out of a situation that I don't like for something that's less undesirable? Versus going up to her and saying, I don't want to be apart from you. Any part of my life moving forward. And if there's anything that you want me to do or change or be doing or be about to marry you, Nothing is off the table. Because I know that, if, that if, if we don't spend our lives together, I will never be full and whole. I think in a lot of ways, I, and I don't know, maybe you, I think in a lot of ways, I have wanted Jesus to come back. I have looked to his appearing to get out of the crappy situation that I'm in. And his appearing gets me out of that. Versus, I could have the best situation here and I still want Jesus more. I want him so badly because I know that he is more than all of my desires put together. And I know that in the, the only way that I'm going to feel 
whole and full and, and what I was made for is for me to be present with Jesus Christ. That's loving his appearing. If Jesus just gets me out of the, of the terrible things that are happening around me, I don't know that that's the, the, the crown of righteousness. I don't know that that's loving his appearing. And, and so desire gives birth to action and leverages what we have to get the treasure that we have our eyes on, doesn't it? Like when you really desire something, what won't you do to get that? What won't you give up? When you really desire something and you have your eyes and heart set on, on that treasure, there's a lot of things that you're willing to do and give up for that thing. Do I really desire the appearing of Jesus Christ? Do I really want him to? Is my life lived in that way of loving Jesus? And so, so the question is this. So what, what is it? Like, what do you, how do you love Jesus? <laughs> how do you love his appearing? Specifically, love his appearing. There's two, two scriptures, two. Total of like four, ver four verses I wanna read. First one is in Matthew 24, 14. And Jesus himself says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then the end will come is actually saying, then I'll come back. <laughs> That's when he appears is when this happens. So Jesus himself says, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. It needs to be proclaimed to every people, every ethnicity, every tribe, every language, every subculture, every group, every group on the globe, and then the end will come. So if I really love Jesus appearing, then what is going to be my activity? Because of my desire for Jesus appearing, it's gonna be that I am invested and passionate about everyone knowing Jesus. That people who I am walking with here, people who I run into later today, people who are on the other side of the globe, that I am passionate about all of those things because that's what loving his appearing is. Because he said, I'll show up when this is done. Like if Sherry said to me, okay, I will accept your proposal, but you have to do these three things before you can marry me. How long do I wait to get those three things accomplished if I am convinced that I will not be whole until I'm married to her? What kind of a fool would like put those things off and say, well, I'm gonna get some other things done first. And so if I love Jesus appearing, then I will be about making disciples of all people And then in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the completion of the Great Commission includes the extent of evangelism, evangelization and obedience within people groups not just reaching new people. 
So as long as Jesus has not returned, there must be more people groups to reach and we should keep reaching them and we should keep teaching the reach to obey. That makes sense? Like discipleship, making disciples is reaching those who don't know and teaching the reach to obey. That's loving his appearing. If that's not what I'm doing, if that's not what my life is built upon, then it seems to be according to Paul, I don't love his appearing. Now he doesn't connect this with salvation, but I think it's connected with the well done, my good and faithful servant. If I don't love his appearing, which is fleshed out in my life now, this way, I don't know that Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So here's the thing, we're alert, but we're not alarmed then in this life. We're alert to know these things and recognize these things about ourselves when God reveals them, whether through events or people, we're alert, but we're not alarmed because we know Jesus will come back. We know the job will get done. It's just how, how badly do we want the marriage of the lamb? <laughs> we persevere rather than preserve ourselves. We're called to proclaim the truth in gentleness with others before the coming judgment. Our job is not to judge. Our job is to proclaim the truth in gentleness. Because the job description is not just giving people notice. It's letting people know and teaching them to obey. And, George Eldon Ladd, who uh, is a, wrote a, a, a book that is probably in every minister's library from great-grandpa's on, on down. <laughs> um, it's a theological book. And in, in, in his theology of the Bible, he writes, here is the motive of our mission, the final victory awaits the completion of our task. And then the end will come. There is no other verse in the word of God which says, and then the end will come. When is Christ coming again? When the church has finished its task. When will this age end? When the world has been evangelized. What will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, and then the end will come. When? Then. When the church has fulfilled its divinely appointed purpose. That is a big but clear and simple statement. And it's true. So what's our purpose in gathering together? Like this morning, what, why, why do we gather together? Why would we want to walk in community with each other? 
Why would we want to gather together regardless if there's an event or program that is drawing us together? What's the purpose in gathering? The purpose is to help our love not grow cold and to keep us burning with joyful expectation and love for the Lord's appearing. It is to spur one another on to perseverance. Don't stop. You know what I think? I, I realize this at the end of last service. You know what is possibly one of the most tragic and terrible statements that we make almost every week here? It's at the end of service, somebody says, see you next week. Is that family? Is that what Jesus has called us to? See you next week? Like that, I mean, I'm not saying Travis is a bad guy, but Travis said that at the end of last service. And I've never noticed, I've said it. I'm not saying he only says it. When he said this last service and I was sitting over there, my heart sunk. Because again, God was pulling apart the cultural seepage that has come into our gospel. We come together to help each other persevere and love the Lord's appearing. Listen to the encouragement that Paul gives. First, Thess First Thessalonians 5, he says this, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He surely will do it. Who's doing the preserving there? God is, isn't he? All I have to do is persevere. God is faithful and he will keep us blameless until the appearing of Jesus. Listen to what he says to the church in Corinth. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's just two of the, the many examples where it's clear that God will keep us. We just have to persevere. And perseverance is found in living out the call that Jesus has given to all of his family as, a, as, a, as an evidence of our love for his appearing. So as we kind of, before we finish, um, I wanted to, I wasn't sure if this is a good idea or a bad idea, but I mean, we've only got till the Lord's appearing, so whatever. <laughs> I, uh, I've realized lately because this thing of perseverance and preservation for me has been something that's been brewing for a, a few months. And I've, and I've been realizing that I have to make a choice 
to let God's faithfulness preserve me and stop worrying about myself. And that fleshes out in a hundred different areas. I think some of the things that God has been, again, speaking for myself, God has been doing in me and working is that I am more and more, not just lip service, but deep recognition that I'm not a resident of this world or this culture or this system, no matter how good or bad they are. That my designation that I am living in exile because I am a son of God, part of the kingdom of God, and I live here. And one of the things that, that probably should be true is that because of who I am in Christ, I should be in exile here, living here, of the world's culture. I should be exiled from the structures and the power of the world around me. So the question that's been raised is, how have I been so comfortable for so long living here? Why have I been so comfortable? for so long living in, in this place. Living, loving Jesus is to go and die. That's what Jesus says. And I've heard all this stuff. Why haven't I gotten? Why more recently has, has my life the way I think about it, and, and even the things I'm doing have changed so dramatically. I've heard all of this. Nothing's new. But I think God has revealed for me in my life, just like Paul wrote letters to the churches in the early church, through the things and the disruptions that have happened over the last few years, God has revealed in my life the things that are not the gospel of Jesus Christ but are culturally added into my gospel. And I think into our gospel. And so this is my drive, my urgency, my cross that I believe God has given me. And I don't want you to miss this because it is so easy for us to live blind and think we're doing fine, but we're not. And some of you are way ahead of me. <laughs> some of you are right next to me. Some of you are blissfully unaware, which I am not, I am not opposed to that state. I love that state. <laughs> And, and I am so driven by this realization in my own life that I so don't want anyone to miss this. And I have realized that in this burden, I've even hurt some people in our church. wasn't my intent, and I'm sorry. But 
I want you to know this. I am finally learning that leadership in Christ's kingdom is to go and die. And so I cannot participate any longer in the proliferation of a message giving excuses for disobedient living in my own life or failing to warn others of the same disobedience in theirs. And I will leverage all of me to help us and anyone who wants the abundant life Jesus calls us to as disciple makers and a real found family in Christ, not just going through motions. Discipleship and community and purpose that we could hardly imagine. And what we already know is that God is faithful in this. He's made that abundantly clear. He will do it. The question is, are we faithful? Am I faithful? Is Maranatha my heart cry? Do I love his appearing? Because if I do, it'll be really obvious to you. I love that Jesus, before he died, he brought his disciples to a table and shared a meal because we all have to eat. And he said, when you do this, because you do it all the time, I want you to remember me in this fact, in this calling on your life. I'm going away. And if you love me, and you love my appearing, you really do want me to come back, then you will express that in obeying in what I've taught you to do. Not for the sake of obedience, but because you actually love me. Not because you're tired of being single, but because you want the marriage of the Lamb. Because that's what's driving you. And I love that Jesus took the food that was on hand and he said, when you have this bread, when you share bread together like this, I want you to take it and I want you to break it and remind yourself that my body was broken for you so that you could be part of the faithfulness of God and you could love and not fear my appearing. So Jesus said to his disciples, this is my body that was broken for you so that you can have communion with me. How often do we forget that this also gives us communion with each other? So take and eat it. And then Jesus took the cup. But this is my life being poured out. Just like Paul says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. 
Jesus graciously poured his life out as a drink offering for our salvation. Let's drink together. I don't know what the Spirit is doing in individuals. I, I, I do know the Spirit is doing a work on this planet. And I also know that Jesus' return is rapidly approaching. I don't know where you are or how you walk through each week. But don't resist the Spirit. If you have to embarrass yourself, if you have to apologize, if you have to radically change all of your values, it's worth it. He's worth it. Jesus, I, I just ask this morning, you've told us what it looks like to love you. I wanna love your appearing more than anything. And God, it would seem that those who love your appearing in this way would have a unity that the world cannot understand. So God, help me to love Jesus appearing. Holding nothing back. Help me to focus on perseverance, not preservation. God, when I've done what I'm supposed to do, you'll take care of it. I pray that we would persevere. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.